Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We want you to know that during COVID, we're holding one big service outdoors and we'd love for you to join us whenever you can. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Hey, everybody. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're just for the first time or the first time in a long time checking out Sunridge, I just want to say welcome and thanks, thanks for being part of our online uh, version or podcast a um, couple of things I want to talk about before I jump into the message. First of all, uh, if you are new to the Valley, I want you to know that we have intentionally decided not to meet in our building in large groups because of COVID. Uh, that, uh, that just was a no-brainer for us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we love this community, and certainly we love the people that call Sunridge home, and we want them to be safe. We want all of us to be safe. And so we're meeting outside 10.30 a.m. every Sunday, uh, weather providing, uh, and we'd love to have you come out. And if you do come, please say hello to me. I love meeting the new people uh, in our valley or people that are church shopping, and uh, so I would encourage you to do that. Also, uh, I want to mention our tradition, our Christmas tradition of, of being extra generous uh, both as a church and as individuals, we uh, this Christmas season, we're supporting Community Mission of Hope, and we hope that you'll join us in that. Um, and also, uh, we always have found that people who call Sunridge home are extra generous to their church during this time, and it boosts our budget, but also we use so many of those funds during this period to uh, touch other Places and ministries, just a couple of weeks ago, we sent a check for $10,000 to uh, Dora Faith Orphanage down in Mexico, one of the ministries that we support, and we're always looking for opportunities to do that. So please be extra generous this year. And then um, uh, the last thing I want to mention is something that I'm experimenting with. You know, in this time of COVID, we're kind of like making it up as we go. And of course, I've had to like start recording these messages on Tuesday or Wednesdays during the week. And uh, so I thought like, how could I take this liability to me and turn it into an asset? And so I want to just clue you in on something I'm doing during the online version that you're either listening to or watching. Uh, I'm expanding it a little bit. So you're getting uh, more than I mentioned on Sunday morning or talk about, and that's intentional. Today, it's super intentional. I'm going to talk about pacifism today. And, uh, you know, I'm going to unpack that a little further than, than I do on Sunday morning because we have families and kids, and I just don't think that they'll sit and listen that long to me, certainly not the kids. Uh, so uh, anyway, I'd be really interested in your... Uh, I don't know what you think about that. Uh, I'm playing with certain ideas. And uh, so email me, bsype at sunderschurch.org and say, hey, it's a great idea. I like the online version or, or you know, dig in more or like, please stop because uh, my drive isn't that long and I don't want you, <laughs> I don't want to listen that long. I don't know. Anyway, I would just love for you to tell me what you think about uh, our approach there. So uh, if you're new to Sunridge, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7, and I'm just going to jump in. We're in Matthew 5, verse 38. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The lex talionis, the law of retribution or tit for tat, says that the punishment must equal the crime. And that, according to scholars, is one of the oldest laws of civilization. So evidently, humans realized early on they needed a structure for justice. And the lex talionis is not 
or was not a means for a vendetta, but actually to prevent it. Because there is often a fine line between justice and retaliation, don't you agree? And so for human beings, though, to flourish, we need justice. And without a way to deliver justice in a measured and fair way, it will become retaliation. So along comes Torah, and if you're not familiar with that word, it means law. It's the Old Testament law comprised of 613 commandments from the Old Testament that Hebrew people followed. They still do. Along comes Torah, and it employed fair justice. And that is what Jesus is referring to here in verse 38 of Matthew 5. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is the lex talionis. And modern civilizations still apply this same principle. I mean, whatever time you're living in, we have to determine how will we deal with crime, the violations of rights, or to theft, or to wrongs, or to bodily harm. But as Jesus has been doing in each of these antitheses, the you've heard it said, but I say to you, uh, Jesus is going to tweak this law. And this is the fifth one that we've looked at. There'll be a total of six. Next week, we'll talk about loving our enemies. But in each case, Jesus goes for something deeper. He goes beyond the law and he looks deeper and causes us to think more deeply about heart issues. But first, in order to really understand what Jesus is saying here, as usual, we need a historical and biblical context of this law called the lex talionis. So a few thoughts. Number one, the law of fair retribution is expressed in the Torah. In the Torah, it provides for both capital and corporal punishment, and it's to be fair and equal to the crime. In the book of Exodus, chapter 21, verse 23, it says, If there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And if you uh, want to dig deeper into the mentions of uh, Lex Talionis in the Old Testament, I've listed those on our note sheets. There's a ton of verses, but when you read through them, what you'll find is there's both capital and corporal punishment. It, it addresses both personal injury. It talks about livestock and uh, property, and it says that it must be fairly applied to all, residents and refugees alike. And when we first hear it, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it sounds barbaric, and it brings up images of cultures where they cut off hands. Maybe it's just the phrasing, but basically what it's saying is that the, 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 the punishment must fit the crime in the language of the day. And actually, uh, not rather than being uh, barbaric, this, according to scholars, was the most fair and compassionate and merciful law of its day and time, especially when you compared the Hebrew people to the cultures that they were surrounded by. I mean, at that time, everything was death, no matter what the crime. There was like one punishment, death. And uh, slowly and painfully, if possible, whenever possible. So that, I mean, you're familiar with history, even uh, from your junior high days, a father who steals a loaf of bread in that time because his children or family are starving, would easily, likely receive an extended imprisonment or even death. So the Torah does give us this law. Number two, a fair justice system is the foundation of civilization. Human flourishing, as we are learning with all six of the antitheses, uh, they all address our ability to thrive. Human flourishing requires justice. I mean, can you imagine living in a culture or a time that has no laws, that only the powerful rule? Um, there's no way to enforce the laws or righteous judgment or violations. It's complete anarchy. In other words, uh, it's, it's like a time where everybody does what they want. Maybe... Maybe it's like a family get together during the holiday and all the kids of the family 
that are there are running around in your house. I'm just saying, uh, not that I know anything about that. That feels a lot like anarchy to me. Torah addresses justice systems and human flourishing together and shows the link. Uh, In Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, we see that the law demands that a justice system is established. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. So make a justice system and assign people to oversee that. Secondly, that justice system is to be constantly reviewed to assure fairness. Verse 19, do not pervert justice or show partiality. Don't accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. See, justice systems can either start or over time uh, become misshapen. And we see lots of instances in the Old Testament where prophets speak out about unjust systems. Uh, When a culture has no justice system or a corrupted justice system, people cannot flourish because if there is not justice for all, then there is no justice at all. Thirdly, uh, Torah says that human flourishing depends upon these justice systems being in place. Verse 20, follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. And you know the, the link there between following justice and living and possessing the land that God has given you. The link there is so that. That is that our capacity to live in the way that God has designed for us to live is dependent upon this justice system being in place. See, without the security that a justice system provides, we are not safe. As we've talked about uh, previously in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, safety and security is number two, right after just our basic physiological needs. So justice allows us to flourish because it provides boundaries of behavior and recourse for violations, and it protects the vulnerable. That's important, I believe, to note because, as we'll see, some interpretations of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew's gospel uh, seem to eliminate justice, and we're going to be talking about that. The third thing I want to point out about uh, the historical and biblical context here is the origins of our Western justice system come from the Torah. Cultures have a different source. They have different sources for justice and laws. And in this way, Christianity is unique. Our founders uh, were clearly uh, guided by a core belief in the Ten Commandments, the Old and New Testaments. If we take documents like the U.S. Constitution and state constitutions, the Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence, we see ties to Judeo-Christian concepts. Even some of our laws or guiding documents reference the Bible or our Creator, and sometimes they even directly quote Scripture. Were they all wonderful Christians? No. But they formed a nation essentially upon the foundation of Judeo-Christian belief. And throughout history, cultures that were founded on or emulated biblical laws have for the most part thrived. The last Uh, historical biblical concept I want to bring up is that Jesus embraced the need for justice. In Matthew 23, later in this gospel, verse 23, he says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, that's one of the religious leaders of the Jewish religion at this time. You are hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. I want you to see that the more important matters of the law to Jesus are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And those can be in conflict, at least in our mind, in certain ways. But 
to this point, Jesus says to, this religious, to the religious leaders, even your religious acts lack justice. But here, Jesus is not advocating for a better or more fair justice system. He does this in other uh, places in the Gospels. But here, as we mentioned, he's going for something more, something deeper, so deep that some people feel that he is overturning Torah on this idea of righteous justice. I don't think so. I think that Jesus is revealing how love and grace and faithfulness and mercy sync with justice. And as we'll talk about how to live in a culture that is antagonistic to those ideas. Basically, Jesus says this, we don't have to seek retribution every time we feel wronged. In verse 39 of Matthew 5, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, one question I have is Jesus calling some person evil? Possibly he is, and certainly for those of us for for whom evil or unjust things have been inflicted upon, we would call those people evil. This other person, the other is the evil, and that can be an individual. It can be a category of people. It can even be a culture. And Jesus here in Matthew 5, brings up four examples from their daily experience of how they could seek retribution. Verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. Verse 40, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. In verse 42, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So what is going on here? What what is happening and how would they hear Jesus' words and what would their experiences have been? Let's talk first of all about slapping and turning the other cheek. You know, in the first century, hands were used for different things. The right hand was used for almost everything. The left hand was used for personal hygiene. I don't need to explain that any further. But you would never touch anybody with that left hand. There also were two ways of hitting. You could punch somebody or you could slap them with the back of your hand. And this is a hierarchical society. So everyone knows where they fall. Everyone knows their place in this culture. And if you were to be in a conflict with somebody, you would punch somebody that was in your class, but you would slap somebody who was beneath you. And that would bring an added insult to striking them. It's this concept that has made most translators of the Bible use slap instead of strike or hit because that's the meaning. This is, this is the context in which it would happen. That strike is described, that is described here, is meant to be demeaning and is signifying, I am above you. So think through this. Think through how this happens. If you take your right fist and you try to hit somebody on the right cheek, you can't do it. You see, you have to go like this to strike them on the right cheek. But you could slap them with a backhand slap meant to insult them. You could strike the right cheek. So imagine you're a servant and you've heard this message. You've heard what Jesus has said and you are slapped on the right cheek by someone who is above you. They've demeaned you and it's clear what has just happened. Now you turn your left cheek to them and your oppressor wants to strike you again. They can't slap you. They can't, they would have to slap like this. So what are they left with? A punch. But if they punch you, that would make you their equal. Something to think about. These are all going to tie together. Let's talk about lawsuits and shirts. And in this part, in this verse, Jesus creates a parody between a legal setting and a social custom. Men wore two uh, layers of clothing. They wore an outer cloak and an inner garment, a coat and a shirt. Uh, The shirt would be more like underwear, but that coat was used as a covering. 
not just a heavy coat, but it was also a sleeping blanket. And when people traveled, they would just cover up with this coat. So it was socially unacceptable to take an Israelite's coat for any length of time. In some cases, even their survivability, their survival depends upon them having a possession of this coat. And Jesus says, if someone sues you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. So once you take away the undergarment and you take away the coat, what is left? Basically, that person is naked. Who's feeling uncomfortable now? Let's talk about going the extra mile. Roman soldiers had the right to requisition any occupied people and of course the Jews are part of this, into compulsory work. So they could command or demand that you carry their pack for a mile. And just imagine how insulting this must have been. What would you feel? This is basically a temporary enslavement. Um, but the limit to this is one mile. To force you to go two miles violates their code. But when you complete that first mile, you insist on going too. You just keep going. Now the soldier is uncomfortable because it's violating his coat. In fact, he could even get in trouble for, for allowing you to do that. Fourth, let's talk about uncommon generosity because it is very common in Jesus' day for people to borrow and receive interest. But what Jesus is talking about here is essentially not a business transaction. The one who asks you that Jesus is referring to is likely someone who cannot afford to pay the interest. They can't even pay you back. They're likely even a beggar. And what would they do when they saw this person approaching them or that their pathway would lead them to them? What do we do? turn away. And instead of turning away, Jesus says to employ uncommon generosity. He basically says, look them in the eyes and give them what they need without any expectation of profit. So these are the examples from their day-to-day -day life that they would, when they hear Jesus saying this, they know exactly what he's saying. They've all experienced this or they know people that have gone through this. So some questions here, and this is a part that I won't go as in, uh, in depth with uh, on Sunday morning. I'll make a few statements about it, but like, is Jesus saying, be a doormat? Is he saying, throw your money away? I mean, that would be in conflict to the study we did just last year when helping hurts. And is Jesus um, advocating pacifism? Maybe he is. There's uh, a lot of debate about that, and, uh, but I don't think so in either case. And I know that there are people that are listening or watching to this that you will disagree with me, and that's okay. And, uh, you know, like, I'm not all-knowing, certainly, but I'm going to take my best crack at this because I think it's important for us in applying what uh, Jesus teaches here today. I think that the thing that kind of, like, biases me uh, not to be uh, that, that Jesus isn't uh, advocating pacifism here is that he already has acknowledged the need for justice in a culture. And Torah tells us that justice is required for human beings to thrive. So I don't think that Jesus can say, throw out a fair justice system, which in some ways pacifism would create. And this, to me, doesn't seem so much about a rigid rule regarding nonviolence than something much deeper, our hearts. And we're going to talk about that. Often literalism, like just taking these literal words and like, like filtering through our modern minds and saying, well, this is what it means, that can lead us to misinterpret or totally miss what is being said. And I feel that... Um, to declare this rigid nonviolence or pacifism, like hardcore pacifism, is just another form of legalism. I can tell you that if someone broke into my house uh, or threatened my family, I would likely use force. 
In fact, I was thinking about this as I prepared this message. Actually, Cindy sleeps closer to the bedroom door than I do, so she would be the first person to attack them, and I would see how that went. I'm just kidding. Um, I can't tell you how weird it is to just sit in here and talk to a camera and crack really good jokes and uh, not get any feedback, so forgive me. The thing I'm saying is like, can there only be two choices in this? Are there, are there only two choices? It's either always administer violence or retribution or never do it. As, are we left with just a binary choice? I don't think so because in the Torah we see both clear advocacy for justice and the lex talionis, tit for tat, but we also see places where that is merged or replaced with mercy. It's not so much a balance like today you do this, the other day you do that. It's more about a tension that is created when we bring our hearts into this. Uh, for instance, um, the Old Testament provides for what's called the city of refuge, where if somebody accidentally takes a death or uh, takes a life, they can escape to the city and be protected by family members or others that would seek immediate retribution. There is a forgiveness plan that debt needed to be paid off within seven years, and if not, it had to be, it had to be forgiven. And then you see even explicit, specific examples of where justice and mercy sync up in the law, in the Torah, Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people but love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, don't flip it back onto them. The higher value here is to love your neighbor as yourself. Proverbs 24, 29, do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. Not that anybody has ever said that before. I'll pay them back for what they did. I mean, often our retaliation, and, and we feel good about it when we do it, right? is they've done this to me, so I'm just going to turn around and do that. And Proverbs says, don't say that. And then sometimes uh, there's even the, the, the indication or like that, that this, in this situation, it's time to let God handle this one. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 22, do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he'll avenge you. I bet, I bet if you're listening to me right now, you, you can think of examples where you, know, you had every right and, and even maybe the law gave you the right to seek retribution, but there was something in that where you thought, okay, this one's on God. I mean, sometimes it's just because we can't do anything about it. And then like, well, I guess the Lord's gonna have to take care of that. But this is, this is saying it's intentional. You could do... You could respond, but this one is going to be up to God. And then what is uh, probably one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible comes from Micah, where he merges justice and mercy just explicitly right in his command. In verse uh, six or chapter 6, verse 8 of Micah, he says, He's shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And this, is, this has become a favorite of mine because I'm, when you're a decision maker, often you have to merge these things. If you're a parent, if you're a boss, if you're a leader, you're often managing these values all at once. It isn't just justice, and it isn't just mercy, but certainly it's always humility. And sometimes it's hard to bring those together. I think what's happening here, as, as is with all of the antitheses that we've looked at, this is number five, Jesus is not doing away with them, but he's going after the heart. And he's calling us to live by a new ethic, to live under a new reality, his kingdom, and that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And I know you know, it's easy to say, it's easy for me to unpack this biblically and talk about it, but it's incredibly difficult. It's scary. And it's, it's kind of mind-boggling to think, how do I juggle all of these things, all of these ideas of bringing justice together with, um, 
with mercy and the calling of Jesus in our lives to not seek retribution. So how do we respond? I have a few ideas that I'd like to bring out. First of all, I think that this is a reality check about what's in our hearts. I think that this entire teaching is is about how you get nudged, something happens in life, and we want to react. You think about it uh, like if you're holding a cup of coffee and someone bumps you, what comes out of that cup? Coffee. And when our world gets rocked or somebody hurts us, somebody nudges us, they bump us, what comes out of us? Often we say, you made me mad. But isn't it true that really they didn't make us do anything? Just they revealed what was already in us. And I think when our rights are violated, and each one of these, as we'll see, is an instance of what our rights, what we feel our rights are, and we have uh, the capacity to respond with retribution, but we don't have to respond that way. Maybe we should. Certainly the zealots of Jesus' day had a plan for that. They were the guerrilla fighters of the Hebrew people and were seeking uh, to wreak havoc in anarchy and try to overthrow the Roman Empire because they were sick of it. Sometimes it's time to fight. There is a time for war. It could be the right thing. But we have to wrestle with this thing that Jesus says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Sometimes we can take these statements of Jesus to such a level that it negates the truth. You know, if maybe your brain is going there already, it's like, oh, we think, oh, yeah, give everything to the homeless. Give all my stuff away. Let people take advantage of me. Just make me a doormat. And I think that that hyperbolic thinking gives us an excuse to not really wrestle with what is everyday life for us. Um, this is more about, do I let someone in my lane on the freeway? Um, what about when I'm hurt? What about when someone slanders me or says something that I feel isn't true or I feel like they've intruded into my space? You know, I can feel really righteous about reacting to that. And that might be the right thing. I don't know. But I think these words of Jesus make us think more deeply about it. We, we use words like freedom and rights, but Jesus used words like surrender, denying ourselves, and taking up our cross. All I'm saying is that the automatic response of fighting or clawing back, or reacting, it may not be the right response. We should consider what's in our hearts when we're placed in this position, because when we get bumped, what is spilling out is coming from within us, not from the bump. So this is uh, a reality check for us about what's in our hearts. Secondly, I think that this is an example of how to live in a post-Christian age, which we are living in, by the way. See, we have lived in not a Christian culture, but I would more say it's a Christian influence culture, more on the line of the period of Constantine in a different day and time. But that has changed over the last 50 years. And for me, and I don't know about you, but it feels like that's accelerating in this time. You know, it's not likely in this Western culture that we're gonna be burned at the stake or thrown in prison, but many Christians are facing resistance and Christian ideas are being kind of shoved aside. Um, and there is a form of persecution that happens in different cases. And what that's, it creates emotions in us. And I've talked to so many of my friends and people uh, from Sunridge and other 
even other areas of the country and people, because we're living in this time where things are changing so much. And, you know, Christianity used to be like an ideal, and now it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, berated. Uh, It creates feelings in us like we're scared. Some people are scared. Some are frustrated. We feel anger. We feel anxious. We feel anxious for the next generation. Some of us feel ready to fight. Some of us feel ready to retreat. Some feel despair. But those are all real emotions. And they come from like who we are and our experiences. But I don't think it's the way. See, today I think we are living more in the context of Jesus' day in the first century church. Of the four life examples that Jesus noted, three are entirely just in their cultural uh, setting. The last is socially acceptable given the culture at that time because you could be slapped as a lesser, as an insult by your boss or by a Roman soldier. And a Roman soldier had every right at this time to impose himself on you and to force you to carry his pack. You could be sued unjustly in a court of law and required to pay up even down to the underwear that you're wearing. And it was very likely that on your day-to-day travels, you would encounter beggars and people who needed help. And none of these things was fair. But here's the thing. None of it violated laws of that time. So the idea of justice in this setting has nothing to do with it. It wasn't even an issue. I'm sure it didn't feel good. It felt unjust, and it was unjust. But it was the way it was, and it was culturally accepted. Could that happen today? Is it happening today? It is in many different ways. So what do we do? What do we do as believers in a time when we feel like exiles in the culture in which we live? And I think that this is where the third thought that I have about responding makes such a difference. I think that this is about how to live as a Jesus follower without power. We haven't had to do much of this in this country. In a lot of places in the world, they do. But I would imagine that many of you have felt that way. You felt powerless. And maybe even the idea of some of the things that Jesus said, like I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, is resonating more and more with you. Because we have, in some cases, no power to employ justice, no way to force it, no eye for eye. Recourse is not an option. And even though we can't make direct connections from that culture to ours, we still have to ask ourselves, how do we respond to this? And we see like a beautiful picture and example in how the first century Christians are living out these ideas and how Paul, the Apostle Paul, fills in this teaching. In uh, his letter to the Romans, which is a letter he wrote to Christians, in Rome at that time, he says, these things are going to happen. You are going to be powerless. And in Romans 12, verse 14, when that happens, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position." Do not be conceited. You see, get the picture here. Like They are living in a time when Christianity, Christians, Christian ideas, Christian values, they're not honored. They're berated. They're not part of the program. These, they have no power in that culture at all. And what does Paul say? Fight back. He's, he's applying this section of the Sermon on the Mount to their day and time, just 
you know, 30, 40 years later in the first century church. What do I do? Verse 17, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Is all of this sounding familiar to you? Be careful uh, to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it possible, I love how he just, like Paul gives us like a more expanded version of this. I love the way he says this. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath as it, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Is it, can you hear the words of Jesus coming out in Paul's voice? As we've talked about, the Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto of Jesus' ministry and kingdom life and, and the foundation of Christianity. And you're seeing, we're hearing these same words and these same concepts be applied in, in a different time, just you know, a generation away but they're taking these words and they're bringing them into their day and time. So instead of fighting back or repaying evil for evil, verse 20, Paul says, on the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul's summary in all of this the way he brings all of this together that he's just said is in verse 21. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To be overcome by evil is to respond in fear, to be anxious or angry, or to despair, or even for some of us, to act unchristian. Instead, he says, overcome evil with good. What, what does he mean by that? In each instance, overcoming evil with good is to respond with love and heart and non-retribution. And when we do this, this is going to tie back into Jesus's uh, teachings and what we've just looked at, the power shifts. When I'm insulted by a slap and I turn my cheek, I am overcoming evil with good because I'm, I'm flipping the power structure. When my shirt as a is at uh, risk, that I could experience loss. Maybe it's just, maybe it's not. But to give extra in that moment, to offer it up, again, flips it. When I'm imposed upon unfairly to walk a mile, to carry a load that is not my load to carry, to go away I don't want to go in this moment, rather than stopping and refusing, when I go another mile with that person, when I offer to carry the load even further, I'm shifting the power. I am heaping coals on his head. And when I'm being asked or begged to give compassionately and to be generous, rather than turning my face away and trying to ignore the problem if I look the person who's made in the image of God in their eyes, and I do the best thing for them in that moment. It may or may not be throwing money at them. I know that. But I see them as a human being, and I'm going to give generously in the way that's going to help them the most. In so many ways, and I expect it to be worse, honestly. We, as Christians, can face injustice. We can feel wronged. We can be truly wronged. And we can be imposed upon. But I think what's happening here is Jesus is calling us to live a radical selflessness in an age of self-preservation and retaliation. Isn't that what we're living in right now? 
And I don't think that there's any hard and fast rule for this. I can't say, here's, here's your little spin dial, or here's some dice to roll, and, and it'll give you the exact answer. These things have to be wrestled with. All of us need to be wrestling with the ways in which we feel culture pushing in on us. And just like in Jesus' day, his followers, they were kind of a remnant, an exiled group. I think that that's happening more and more in the West. And yet, we're, there's no clear answer. We have to think deeply about these things. And I'm going to tell you like what I think is the key to this. And I'll close with this. Is, um, this is the gospel. What Jesus is advocating here is really just an everyday example of the gospel, the good news. The gospel is, you deserve this, but I'm going to give you this. We are all broken people, and there's none of us that's righteous enough to deserve the grace of God. And I don't know about you, but that humbles me often. I often forget, too. But the gospel is the fact that even in our sin, God loved us. Even with all of our flaws, God did not seek retribution on us. Jesus said that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. He was a friend of sinners. And he said that the physician comes to help the sick, not the well. And if one sheep is lost out of a hundred, he leaves the 99 and goes to find the lost one. This is the gospel. If you're not a Christian or you're exploring faith and you, like, you have all these misconceptions uh, from like our culture and media, and, but yet you find yourself being drawn to God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God loves us. And he doesn't demand us to work ourselves into heaven, into his favor. He just loves us. And all he asks is that we acknowledge that we need that. But as a Christian, I don't just accept the gospel, right? I'm called to live it. And isn't this what Jesus is saying? Living the gospel is to lay down our lives for people that want nothing to do with us, that seek to harm us, that will impose a load on us that we shouldn't have to carry, that will ignore us, that will discount us, that will insult us. And isn't that what Jesus did? Didn't he go the extra mile? Didn't he carry the load that wasn't meant for him? Didn't he take the insults? The testimony of Jesus' life is that we don't have to give back what is deserved or what we've been given. We can turn the other cheek. We can carry a load and we can give to the people that need it, even if they're undeserving. And I don't know about you, but that's terribly frightening to me and it sounds so impossible. It sounds so above me. Um, but here's what I know. I know without a clear picture of what the gospel is and a constant reminder of who we are and why we are Christians and what has been done for us, without a constant reminder of that and without the power of the Holy Spirit, none of this is a remote possibility. And I, I know, I mean, I'm a human being living life in the same world you are today. And um, I get filled with fear. I get angry. I want to fight. Um, I want to hurt back. But I, as I've been saying, to anyone who will listen, I think that we are in a moment where we have such an opportunity to model Jesus to our culture in this day and time.
Our mission here is to help people find and follow Jesus. And that takes precedent over anything else that's important to me. And if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to help people find Jesus, or I'm going to follow Jesus or be a part of helping other people to do so as well, I'm going to have to model Jesus. And one of the ways that that's going to happen is in not returning evil for evil. Something to think about. Something incredibly hard to live up to. I hope you'll join me in giving it our best shot. I'm going to pray, and um, then we're going to, you can go on to the rest of your day. God, thank you. Um, Thank you for your grace that what our relationship is built upon is your grace and, and nothing else. And I pray that that thought would resonate so deeply in our hearts that we would see that um, there are just times when we're called to love people and to shine your light and to not strike back. And that's, as I've said, so scary and and, um, seems so impossible. I pray, though, that through your spirit and through just the just the knowledge and the, the recognition of, of what you've done for me and for my loved ones, my family, my friends, that, um, that we can do that because you're in us. And in the end, the world will be a better place and people will be drawn to the light of your son because we did it. And that that will be far better than us getting our pound of flesh back or winning or overcoming. I pray that we would be able to bring good to the evil in our world. In your son's name, amen. Thanks, you guys, for listening, for watching. Um, If we can help you in any way, you can contact us at uh, info at sundridgechurch.org. Just email us. We'll respond to your questions, resources. We'll point you in the right direction. And love to see you uh, sometime on a Sunday morning. If you haven't uh, come to Sundridge, 1030, one big service outdoors. And uh, again, like, tell, give me some feedback on whether you want sections unpacked more and whether that, that helps you or not, or you just rather us not do it. Appreciate it. God bless you guys. Hey, everybody. It's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.